The year is 1985. The film is The Bride, directed by Franck Rodem from a screenplay by Lloyd Favell. It gives a new spin on the classic Bride of Frankenstein story with 80s new wave style and sensibilities. Playing the role of the doctor is lead singer of The Police, Sting, and playing the bride is flash dance ingenue Jennifer Beals. After creating a female companion for his first creation, the monster later known as Victor, played by the ever-powerful Clancy Brown, the good doctor decides to bring his female creation into high society, while Victor travels the country with his new friend Ronaldo, a circus dwarf who teaches Victor about life, love, and tragedy. Will fate bring back Victor and his would-be bride, or will the lust and envy of Dr. Frankenstein destroy them all? Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, two titans of cinematic review. Sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but always captivating. Your hosts Antonio of the Cult-Worthy Cinema Podcast and Justin Henson of The Movie Wire are here to take you back to the balcony. So 1985, The Bride. This is one that I was meaning to do on the cult-worthy cinema podcast eventually, but after seeing that it was on the worst list of 1985 for Siskel and Ebert, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to bring it to this show and see what we think about it. Because for me, this is a film that I had really fond memories of watching on cable when I was a kid and again as a teenager but I got to tell you, it's been a good 20 years since I've seen it. So I wasn't sure if I was looking back at this film with, you know, the nostalgia goggles and if it really was as good as I remembered. So I'm glad that we were able to come together on this one, talk about the movie and then talk about the critique. What about you, my friend? This one, I it's been a while since I saw this one. And even during my first viewing, I don't even think I finished it because I think I actually fell asleep during the first half of it. Um, but it was a good revisit and it's a great viewing to really compare and contrast kind of the remake or the reboot, if you even want to call it that. And there's a lot of elements to this. To me, looking at the reviews, I'm actually pretty shocked this was on one of the uh, worst, uh, worst movies of the year in 85, to be honest. Um, but I'm sure we're going to get into that in just a second. But yeah, I mean, it's a great uh, revisit for me. And I think I've watched it uh, about twice in the last week. Yeah, I had to watch it again as well. So I watched it twice since we decided to do it for the film, uh, for the podcast. This is where I am actually very in tune with a lot of the criticisms that Siskel and Ebert have about this movie, but not all of them. Because... There is a sense of reluctancy from one of our critics, and we'll get into that when we start talking about the critiques. But one of the things I find most fascinating about their particular view of this movie is that this was a movie that they were both anticipating. It had a great trailer. It has a great premise. It has great characters and a great cast. So on paper and on trailer, it is something that's promising a lot visually especially, aesthetically, the set and costume design. This is a year after Amadeus. And you can tell that the director and the producers are trying to 
really kind of copy that grandiose spectacle of a period piece. You know, this is going to be England and not, you know, Vienna like like Monadeus was. But you can tell that that is what they were going for. And in the 80s, we were definitely wanting to revisit, let's say, those period pieces or gothic pieces. But we were also in this time where we were casting rock stars in these roles. And we were bringing modern sensibilities and music video flair to these projects. Is that a hindrance to the film? Or is that what actually is its saving grace? I'm still a little bit on the fence on that. And I think that's what we're going to have this conversation of. Is this a style over substance movie? Or is this just a bad movie like some people say? You just nailed it with that comment. I mean... There is a lot of style over substance here, but the style doesn't go with the entire movie. We have this great introduction that almost puts a question mark if this is a continuation of The Bride of Frankenstein from the original, or if this is an actual remake. And it kind of teeter-totters throughout the entire movie on what it wants to be. And this came out in the summer of 85, and there is a lot of elements to make this a great summer picture. It's, It's... kind of a re-imaging. You have Sting, you have uh, Jennifer Beals that's coming off of Flashdance. There are a lot of elements to really attract audiences to this movie. And I think with the anticipation of Siskel and Ebert wanting to see this movie, which confuses me a little bit because they go on in the 80s to complain about how many remakes and how many sequels, (laughs) especially with a movie that holds dear to both of their hearts of The Bride of Frankenstein. So this one, I think they almost anticipated so much. And the trailer looks fantastic. If you were to watch the trailer, I would be excited for this movie. And it's one of my worst disappointments. And I just saw a movie the other day that did the same thing. The trailer was fantastic. And then I was just completely almost confused to a little bit disappointed. Well, that is definitely something that has been a common factor in trailers versus films ever since trailers began. You know, you're going to give so much of the story away. You're going to give all the best moments, all the the best pieces of cinema in the trailer to attract the audiences. And then sometimes the film doesn't deliver. Or the trailer is promising you a film or a tone or a vibe that does not match what the actual movie is about. I've talked about that a lot on my show Uh, we talked about the movie Bound having like this real upbeat kind of uh, rockabilly music to the trailer, and then the movie is a modern kind of stylish film noir. It doesn't match. This one, in a way, it kind of feels the same way, where they're, like I said, there's a new wave rock and roll 80s sensibility to the trailer, but the movie, even though it does have those moments of style and flair, the movie really is more of a meandering story than it is a romantic film that the trailer is promising. And I think that is probably my biggest complaint about this movie is that it's telling two separate narratives at the same time. And the trailer doesn't really focus on that. The trailer focuses on the beautiful people. It focuses on Sting and Eva, played by Jennifer Beals, it does show the monster. It does show his involvement. But what this movie actually is, is a parallel trail of exposition where you are dealing with the story between 
the doctor and Ava, his new creation, who he created for the monster. And then the monster who has escaped the clutches of the doctor and is now starting a new life on the road. He meets people along the way. He has a companion. He joins the circus. And the question is, what is going to bring them back together at the end? And what is the reward of that journey? That is where I think a lot of people are disappointed because the trailer is deceiving. Well, we take the parallel path between the two. And this is where I really did have the issue with it. Because a part of me about quarter way through just felt like this should have been almost a remake of the original Frankenstein, because we have a lot of elements in here that is, did science make the monster or did society make the monster? And we have a lot of examples more on the Frankenstein's monster piece, Victor, than we do with that romance piece, because the sting and the the Beatles chemistry didn't work for me. That always felt like it needed more. It was, it started off with a sexy Gothic vibe and even if we ignore the fact that she got unwrapped looking perfect without any scars <laughs> and all that, we can ignore that because the look, the, the, the photography of it looks amazing. And we have this goth feel in the beginning of it. Even uh, Beals is walking through the mansion buck naked and it has this dark, wonderful tone. That's where the movie should have grown from, but instead it grows to this weird, my fair lady kind of, dominatrix thing and it just doesn't work and i think it almost feels like sting just needed a piece of that movie and they didn't know what to do with them they just wanted him present to show that sexy rock star vibe so this is something that i definitely wrote down in my notes upon this second viewing is this should have been a ken russell film because it plays and it teeter-totters on the verge of let's say being a gothic kind of uh, penny dreadful piece, right? Where there is elements of horror and there are elements of romance and of eroticism and some kink in there too. But Sting is just so bland in this role. He looks way too comfortable in that high cravat shirt. Like, He does play that stuffy high society, but if there's one thing that we know about the Frankenstein character of the Doctor is that he is passionate and obsessive about the science and about the creation and about the development of his creation, where Sting plays it almost completely devoid of emotion. Even his jealousy is bland. So maybe that is stunt casting gone wrong, But then when I dug into it more, he was originally supposed to be the Carrie Elway's character. They wanted him to be the handsome young military man, and somehow they just pushed him into a lead role. I think this should have been someone a little bit more dangerous. It should have been someone with a little bit more energy and antagonistic qualities than this stuffy shirt character that we're given. Because this is my thing. As much as I want to see more of the bride of Ava's character and her, you know, development into high society and dealing with romance and dealing with culture, every time we switch to their story, I just want to see more of Victor and Ronaldo. That's how I felt throughout the entire movie because that's where the real chemistry is. The chemistry between those two characters, the circus dwarf and the monster. 
I, I would, I, it's like a mice of men kind of thing. I want to see more of that. I could watch 90 minutes of just that movie. Yeah. And a good example going into the, the Victor piece of it, but even if we take that one dinner scene with Sting and Beale, Sting doesn't even really have a main part in that. It's the hand, the maid or the handmaid, Ms. Bowman, I think it is, um, that is doing yes. all the teaching and the speaking on this behalf. I mean, I don't get the point of this, of why he's even there other than to appear for that sexual object. Then you're absolutely 110% right. This movie, I would have been more happy with if it was just Ronaldo and Victor. Every scene that they're in was just engaging. It was sweet at times. Some of it kind of cliche, but at the end of the day, it's all entertaining and it's just interesting. Ronaldo is, to me, was more interesting and more likable than Victor to an extent, but together they just work and it's perfect. The decision to make these parallel stories isn't necessarily a bad idea. My thing with this is that there are pacing issues with how they're telling these two stories that really kind of take away from what the movie is trying to do. Either make the story more intertwined, but it seems like it's so formulaic. Or like, we're going to give you 10 minutes of the bride and the doctor, and then we're going to give you 10 minutes of Victor and Ronaldo, and we're going to just keep bouncing back and forth until the third act conflicts happen, right? Where I think if you did have a more chaotic director or maybe a more chaotic script where you're literally intermingling, maybe fever dreams, because they hinted that there are moments where Ava and Victor are having like a psychic connection because they were both brought to life by lightning. They were both reanimated corpses. They hint ever so slightly, like two or three times with the movie, they have a psychic connection. That should have been half the movie. That should have been more of what this film was trying to say, of them trying to find each other through this psychic connection instead of, in, in a way, they find each other later simply by circumstance, which you know how I feel about simply by circumstance situations. <laughs> well, right from the get-go of the movie, they hint at it because right when Beale is hit by lightning, you see all the body parts starting to come to life. You start to see the interactions of that hinting. So I feel like they almost wanted to go more that route, but they just kind of gave up on it because it just slowed down the right. story. But it was pointless because we needed something because uh, the biggest complaint out of the review is the ending, the climax that doesn't have a payoff. And I think the ending would have been better served having a 30 minute kind of what they said, Ebert, Siskel and Ebert said in the review, more of 30 minutes because there is something missing between the relationship of the build where it just feels thrown in. We, right. we There needs to be a little bit more, I hate to say it, but science to the romance to this. Now, do you think that they also are doing us a disservice as an audience by having us expect to know what the Frankenstein legend and lore is? Because we don't get an origin story of the monster. When the film opens up, the monster's already there. They're already in the process of creating this female companion for him. And just like in the original Bride of Frankenstein, she screams when she sees him. You know, she hates me. She hates me. Okay, like we get that. But I feel that 
not enough people probably know the legend and lore of both of those films to really put the puzzle together on their own. It could be very confusing to throw them right into essentially the ending of another film as it begins a new one. I think that that gives our audience a disservice as well by creating an unstable narrative and jumping off point for this story. Because you might not even know why they're bringing this woman together. You might not even know that the creature Victor is a creature. He's just there. And I think that's another issue too, where maybe they're thinking that the audience is smarter than it really is. I got it, of course, but I can see how a lot of people wouldn't. Well, you can tell there's a love around uh, the Bride of Frankenstein. You can always tell that there's a love because the assumption always goes into the the writing, the, the assuming we know, because you've seen it so many times that it just becomes a second language to you, that you're just putting it on paper. But what the frustrating thing is that there was two writers built into this um, that kind of shaped it. So yeah. this should have been caught in the opening scene. That's where I think this should have been. a This would have been a different movie because the, the opening scene is the ending to the Bride of Frankenstein to almost to a T. So 100 percent. And yeah, both the ending of the Bride of Frankenstein and the beginning of this one, they're very well done. But that's where I think we had a lot of conflict on where this movie wanted to go, because there's so much love for the Bride of Frankenstein that nobody could decide what they wanted. They just want to put their favorite elements into this movie and just have it shine and speak for themselves. It's almost like a borderline passion project for all these filmmakers. How can you not put your own passion into what you're creating on what you want to see. I know if I made a movie, it would be so difficult for me if I'm doing a reboot, if I love it so much to not put something that I love in. And I would be selfish. That's why I would never make a movie because I know I would be making it for myself. With this idea that we are starting off this new movie and following these two different characters, I have a lot of issues with the actual casting of jennifer beals i like jennifer beals i like jennifer deals in flash dance i've loved her in the l word like she's a great actress the problem is she doesn't fit this dynamic for me she's not scary enough and it's not for a lack of trying there's moments in this movie where she really does reach out to me but also i think that she is challenged by the blandness of sting where she can't overpower him so she matches his energy and i think that is what sucks the life out of their moments together is the dude just does not have the charm or the charisma his acting is so wooden and i think that's because the dude's not an actor you know he's a performer it's hard to tell performers not to perform and so when you have a character like that in your scene that sucks all the energy out of it, you just can't have chemistry and electricity between two characters. So while I'm saying that her performance isn't bad, it's just not the best it could be because she's got nothing to work with. He's not listening to her lines. He's not responding to what she's giving him. He's literally just reciting dialogue and she's just bouncing right off of that lameness. Where, like we already talked about, Victor and Ronaldo and everyone in their segment, from the villagers to the circus people to the audience members of the circus, 
there is a feeling there of energy and reaction and response of listening to dialogue and returning the dialogue and actually creating a character driven moment with people. And I think that contrast is my biggest issue with the movie. You, you nailed it. Because when you look at Beale with any other cast member, when she's at that party in high society, when the role demands some emotion, some out of the shell, when Sting is not in frame, that's when she's at her best. Right. Because she... Right. Even put yourself in her shoes. There's no way anybody can act with what Sting gives. He can't act in this movie, whether or not... Now, that's not to say he's a horrible actor, because I'm sure he has done some good stuff. But um, in this movie, this wasn't his cup of tea, um, because it this role demands chemistry. This role demands responses from your counterpart. And this, with Beale, was not a great career move, in my opinion, because you're going up against the sex symbol of Sting, and you have to respond. Right. So this one, I think, again, a misfire, to your point earlier, it's the casting. So the casting, I think, was completely wrong on this. If we would have gotten a little bit more chemistry out of this relationship, a lot of the full, a lot of the flaws, a lot of the holes in the Sting Beale relationship could have been a little bit more forgiven. Um, there would have been a lot more to shine in the chemistry between it, where we can actually get engulfed into what they're doing on screen. It's funny because like I was given little echoes of Twilight, right? where you've just got two 100% bland characters trying to lead a movie, and you really don't give a shit about either of them because they're both so bland and dull. They're not reacting off each other. But I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second where they do try and, I think, overcompensate in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein from 1994. Now, I like that movie enough. I'm not going to call myself a fan, but the biggest issue with that one is everybody's acting in that movie. You've got Kenneth Branagh and you've got Robert De Niro and you've got Helena Bottom Carter literally tearing the scenery apart with their performances and it becomes distracting. So there is something to say about being over dramatic and overperforming these same characters, which is a stark contradiction and juxtaposition to what we get in this one. If we could somehow meld these two together and find something in the middle we could have had something really, really special. But yeah, to have such a great classic story and one be just dreadfully underplayed and the other one being comically overplayed, it's it's an interesting thing why this gets rebooted. And they're going to do it again. You know, uh, Guillermo del Toro's got his own thing coming out soon. I have a good feeling about that one, honestly. So we'll see. But at the same time, man, like I said, I can't hate on this movie too much because what it does do right, it does very, very right, right? <laughs> the one thing this movie has in its favor is that a majority of the screen time is going to Victor and Ronaldo. Mm -hmm. So that's where all the positive is. But honestly, when it comes to that chemistry, I would have preferred some overacting on it. I right. think with a lot of... Between uh, Ronaldo and Victor, there is some a little bit of overacting there, but it's fun banter this would have translated and made the movie feel a little bit more balanced out because when we get past the first act, we lose the goth feel. We lose whatever the movie set us up for, and it goes into almost a lighter tone. And that would have actually added to the movie, I think. If you're going to change the tone, change the tone of the performances. So 
the first 10, 15 minutes, that could be forgiven. The movie is over two hours long. Right. So the bigger chunk of the screen time has to go to what you want the vision of the film to be. So if you want it to be a lighter tone on both sides of the stories, then make it a lighter tone, make it a lighter, pro, make, make it a lighter uh, performances. So that way it just feels even. That's something that I think that Amadeus does right for all the moments of drama. There's tons of whimsy, you know, there's lots of musical numbers and the villagers are fun and the parties are fun and Mozart himself is a fun character. I mean, you can literally just taste how much they were trying to bite off of the tone of Amadeus in this film. And they just didn't do enough with the whimsy. And that's one of the things I think is interesting because it's such a grandiose production. The costumes, the set design, the art design, all that stuff is meant to emulate what Amadeus did. But you're doing with a gothic horror romance film. So my biggest question for the producers of this movie is, okay, were you going after accolade or were you going after box office? Because you were doing too much of one and not enough for the other. And we're going to get to the climax in a minute. I don't want to just go ahead and blow that because that's one of the biggest complaints that Siskel and Ebert have about this movie. But, you know, you've got a really solid middle act because you get all of that development with Victor Ronaldo and the circus people. You get a lot of kind of Todd Browning throwbacks in there from his film Freaks. And you give enough of a distraction for Ava's character with Carrie Elway's character of the man that kind of seduces her, the military guy that causes all of the uh, inner turmoil and jealousy from the doctor played by Sting. It's a nice distraction from everything that we saw them do at the beginning. And then by the time we get to the third act, Sting now has to play the jealous and domineering and somewhat abusive guy. And once again, it's not convincing. And she's giving her all to this. She's showing the fear and the rage, and he's just not giving it back. So once we lose Ronaldo's character in the movie, and the monster has to kind of go on his own and deal with all the stereotypical Frankenstein versus the villagers you know, plays that we're used to, we are kind of already bored of that because we've seen that before. So we have to rely on whatever's going on with the doctor and with Ava to get us through that third act. And that's where the film really struggles. And it feels like it doesn't know how to bring them back together again. And again, that is one of the biggest problems with the pacing and the structure of the movie where it's like, you got good characters, you got a really interesting story, but you don't know what to do with it. You don't know how to make these pieces fit together. Well, yeah, we look at a lot of the stuff and a lot of the elements they want to put in. I mean, even look at down to the music. The music should sound really familiar. It really holds to that tradition right. of the original. Uh, Maurice Jar, who does the music on this one, actually puts in uh, Sympathy Number no. 2 from Mall that we heard in the original, but he does his own arrangement mm -hmm. on it and it makes it a little bit more contemporary. But at the same time, I'm unsure if that even works with what they're trying to do, because I think the way the music plays out on screen really supports that unbalanced pacing of what the movie wants to do. And it just doesn't really fit. If you're going to make kind of a remake or a follow up, whatever it may be, 
you need to have some similarities, but at the same time, you need to make it a lot more contemporary to really match the yeah. characters on screen. Having the same kind of music that we had in the 30s to now, it just doesn't work. No, I agree with that. Like, there's there's a loss in translation of like, are we doing a period movie or are we doing a music video? Are we doing something that's really contemporary? Which could have been cool, but they don't want to commit to one or the other. And I think that is one of the things that makes the movie feel quite uneven. But I got to tell you, the movie does do something that I really actually enjoyed. And that it does introduce a lot of, I'm going to say, meta qualities into the script, into the storytelling. For one, they mention Percy Shelley in the movie. You know, Frankenstein's colleague hands him a poem by Percy Shelley, which is such an interesting meta thing. It's like, okay, well, you're going to hand someone the poem who was the husband of the woman who wrote your story. I think that was kind of fun. There's also a lot of allusions to Bride of Frankenstein and to the original movie. One of my favorites is when the monster's on the run in the village, he comes across a blind man. Well, we all know the blind man story, right? where the blind man takes him in. They parody it in Young Frankenstein, where Gene Hackman plays that character, and he pours soup all over him. Great stuff. So when we see the blind man in the street, we're like, okay, I know this cue. The blind man's going to take him in and take care of him. No, not on this one. He's going to like ring the bell and get everyone after him. You know, it's a, it's a quick switch on that. So I do love how playful they try to be with the story and with the expectations that we should already have of it. But it's not enough to save all the other things that it's done wrong, in my opinion. Yeah, and we have the scene, like, the scene where they're in the bar, that just reminds me, and I think it was intentional, I'm sure, of the blind man sharing the bread, sharing the wine, sharing the smoke. Right. So that is kind of a nod to it. And then I love the fact that the characters if are just simply called Victor and then... Um, Sting is just called Frankenstein. So there is a lot of elements yeah. in this that just really do uh, poke and show respect to uh, Frankenstein films of the past. So there's a lot right. of fun stuff here, and they do have some playful uh, fun with it. So, But again, we run into that consistency thing of what it wants to be. It's an identity crisis, and I think they would have been smarter going to one side of the story and sticking to it um, because that's its complete downfall. And I would have loved to see more themes because they hint at so many themes in this movie and they never stick to just one, right? Yeah, they don't commit just to it. Go all in, take some risk. And that's why I think this one was so safe for its own good. They try and do too much, but at the same time, they have so much on their plate. It's too safe because they don't know what to do with it. And right when I think they're going to score a goal on some good symbolism on what the original movies and the book actually portrayed they just leave it on the table and again to your point is it an assumption of the audience or is it something that they just lacked in detail well and before we get into our critics review of this movie when i go and i look at the aggregators and i look at the audience scores and audiences reviews a lot of people are in the same boat as us i mean there's people who actually love it but i think they like the style of it more than the actual substance of the movie I think that it's a pretty fantastic middle of a movie 
sandwiched between a lackluster beginning and a lackluster ending. And it really is up to the viewer to determine whether or not that is going to make or break their viewing experience. Now, I'll definitely watch this again because, again, this movie challenges me and I like so much of it that it's going to make me want to go see if I can put myself out of this path I've been on with this film of how it is disjointed and how these two narratives don't really work when you try and splice them together. But I want to make it work because there is a good movie in here. So I think maybe it's just the mindset that you go into knowing what's coming, knowing where the movie has its issues and its pacing problems. You can wire your brain and your expectation for a film and change your whole viewpoint on it. I've done it before with many movies. And I like enough of what's going on in this film to want to do that again. And I like Clancy Brown. I think it's a great performance. I love the Ronaldo character. I'll say it again. And like I said, I know that Beals is a good actress. I know that she's doing the best she can with what she's given. But is she really worthy of the title role of this film? That's where I'm kind of, you know, having a hard time saying yes. Yeah, I mean, this isn't a horrible movie. You know what? I... Even going into the second viewing, I was back and forth on how I felt about it. And I think I'll do that with the third, the fourth, and the fifth viewing. There is just so much that it's just, I'm in between on. But to your point, there is just so much to like about it and primarily going to be between Victor and Ronaldo. And if I have to fast forward through Sting and Beale, I will just to get to those scenes. (laughs) Yeah, right. But it's a completely watchable film. It's entertaining it's a good cable rainy day type of movie that you just kind of watch and just enjoy and don't think too much on like we kind of are analyzing it now but if you just kind of just watch it there is a lot of innocent relationships there's a lot of innocent playful chemistry going on between at least two of the characters that will make it watchable and enjoyable and to me in no way did this ever deserve to be in the worst movies of 1985. So how about we jump into what these guys have to say about this film? Well, Gene, the first movie on my list is like a lot of the others. It's not a terrible movie. In fact, there were some really, really bad movies you could have put on this show that we'd rather just completely blot out of our memories. These are the disappointments. This movie is an ambitious film that lost its way. The movie is named The Bride, and it starred Jennifer Beals, one of the most exciting young actresses in the movies, in the classic movie role of The Bride of Frankenstein. So that is my biggest question and you've already asked it too if there were so many more movies worthy of being on this worst of list why is this even on here exactly and in fairness they go on to their worst movies of 85 and this is where i completely disagree is that they they quote on their show that they pick the ones that spent the most money the big box office plunders that's that's not a top 10 worst movie list. It's the ones you dread to watch. It's the ones you don't want to see again. And there were a ton of other movies in 85 that I would never want to see again. And I have seen multiple times, but um, this wouldn't be one of them because this one crescendoed from the worst, or I'm sorry, the most disappointing movie of 1985. Uh, Then it just transitioned to the worst movie of 1985 over the next few months. So 
there's a lot of contradiction in that statement by itself. So these are the films that they put on this particular episode of the worst of the summer. So they have American Flyers, St. Elmo's Fire, The Man with One Red Shoe, Return to Oz, Day of the Dead, A View to a Kill, and Brewster's Millions. Now, okay, art's subjective, and I've got opinions about some of these movies. Half of these movies I love on this list. Uh, Man with One Red Shoe, you can take it. (laughs) Uh, American Flyers, you can take it. But St. Elmo's Fire, that to me is a a seminal moment of Brat Pack history. It's not a bad film. It is an excessive film when it comes to privilege of these white kids in the 80s. But that's kind of the whole point, you know? Uh, Return to Oz, come on. I think everyone has learned that it's an underrated masterpiece uh, made by some really creative people that just went really dark, too dark for the audiences of the day. Day of the Dead, okay, it might be the weakest of the Romero trilogy, but it's still, in my opinion, a great zombie movie. View to a Kill is just fun, and it's got one of the best Bond villains of all time. And then Brewster's Millions, man, Walter Hill made a very interesting remake of a classic film with Richard Pryor in the lead role. It's not full force Richard Pryor. It's more of a, a you know lower toned and restrained Richard Pryor for that type of movie. But these were the worst films in their opinion. That is hard to me. So just that list, in my opinion, as an appreciator, makes me think that the idea of the brides on this list just kind of affects the credibility of their opinion, in my opinion. I'm with you. Uh, they lost me at Brewster's Millions, and I just want to remind that Porky's Revenge came out this year, too. So <laughs> the fact that Porky's Revenge didn't get on this list, but Brewster's Millions did kind of offends me a little bit. Um, but you're right. State almost fired. To me, I love that movie. Um, but it, yeah, all these are decent watches. There is so much out this year. I think we had Police Academy 2. We had The Howling 2. We had Red Sonia. All these movies deserve at least to be replaced by these or at least a consideration for these because these in no way are horrible, horrible movies, except for The Man with One Red Shoe. You, like you said, you can have that one. I hated that movie. You can have that one. <laughs> Intriguing performances there, but the bride didn't know whether it wanted to be a serious movie about the philosophical issues raised by the whole Frankenstein legend, or whether it just wanted to be a glamorous, slick remake. The screenplay never made up its mind, and so I couldn't make up my mind either. Here were all these amazing things being talked about on the screen about the nature of life, the nature of responsibility and identity, and I just didn't care. I lo- He's not wrong. <laughs> we've pretty much spent the last 30 minutes saying the exact same thing where the movie can't make up its mind of what it wants to be. It's got very beautiful moments. It says some beautiful things, but it doesn't back any of that shit up with what else it's doing. So yeah, Roger's kind of right on point with that in my opinion. Yeah. I wouldn't go so far in saying that I just didn't care because there are characters that I actually did care. Ronaldo had that one tragic scene, I I felt it. So I wouldn't say I would fully just say I didn't care because just generalizing a movie, just saying holistically I don't care, doesn't bode well with me because if they have characters that you just like to watch and you actually feel something for these characters, you enjoy watching it, that's what I would disagree with because I did care about the characters I saw, two of them at least, that I saw on screen. 
Well, and it's hard too because when you've got Boris Karloff doing the most sympathetic and empathetic version of the Frankenstein monster, and that's how it starts off this path of Frankenstein, no one ever really was able to match that or top that. I, I say even to this day, you especially De Niro's performance, it's weird. It, you don't really sympathize with him. It's made more of an antagonistic character than the way that Clancy Brown does it in this film. So the way I look at it is that in the novel and in the original film, the monster is supposed to be sympathetic. You're supposed to feel for it because essentially it's a representation of humanity, you know, and too many movies, especially the Hammer films, focused on treating it as a monster, as an actual boogeyman type character. So, yes, I care a lot for the character in this. It's just hard to match, I think, the zeitgeist around how sympathetic the original monster is and always comparing every performance of that monster to the original. So I think that does do a disservice to Clancy Brown's performance, but if you just recognize that performance for what it really is, it actually is really good, and the care is there. So I agree with you on, on that rebuttal to that statement. Well, and we look over the years where we have just the evolution, well, I wouldn't even call it evolution, I call it de-evolution of this character, where it becomes an interpretation of how we want to perceive it. It becomes an interpretation of how Hollywood wants us to perceive it. And yeah. there is, like I said earlier, is it science that creates the, the creature or is it society? This is a representation of humanity and how, what forms it, what human elements will create this future, this being that's going to be walking among everybody else. So there's a lot of elements here on the development. And it's not as cut as dry as Hollywood wants us to make it, which is it's a monster that goes around killing people. As we saw in The Bride of Frankenstein, that's not the case because right. there is so many layers to this character. And this is what really upsets me about how the Frankenstein monsters evolve is as we get introduced to Frankenstein's monster, we, we grow, we introduce this character as a monster and Hollywood ev uh, evolves from that point to give the audience what they want. They want that monster. It's almost like a, it's almost like a contradiction to itself of what we are creating on screen. Exactly. Now let's hear how they finish this off because I think that's going to be the next big part of this conversation. The big payoff here, I think what we want to see is the reuniting of the male Frankenstein monster mm -hmm. and the bride, okay? Right. They they do come together for five seconds right. and then it's sunlight time and the movie's over and you're wondering, what happened? That's this right. is what I came to pay for, and I don't the, get it. The entire film is the alternating back and forth between those two stories. The monster who was thrown out, he goes can't to have the bride. A little circus and dwarf. And the bride who realizes there's something missing in her life. If we're going to have those parallel stories for two hours let's have a payoff at the end frankenstein's monster victor whatever you want to call the creature in all of his incarnations throughout film the monster cannot live the monster cannot survive there is no place in the world for him so that is the blood of the story that is what the life force of the story is is that no matter how this creature tries and wants to fit in and be human and be normal and have a companion that will never ever happen in this world we live in 
So the fact that he just said that they come together and then boom, they're like on the French Riviera and the sun is setting. So in five seconds, they've given you this happy ending that shouldn't be there. A, it's a disservice to the story and to the whole theme of what Frankenstein's monster is supposed to be. But also, it's just a dissatisfying ending for any movie, regardless or not, if it is The Bride of Frankenstein meets the Frankenstein monster movie. So I agree with them 100% on that. It's just a bad ending for any film. Yeah, and if you're on the fence, if you like this movie or not, the ending should seal the deal for you because this is an ending that, hey, we ran out of money. Let's make something quick. We ran out of money. <laughs> it's the Masters of the Universe ending where it's like everything to a uh, uh, sword fight in the garage. In this case, it's uh, Sting getting thrown over a wall, <laughs> hits the ground, cut to a sunset, and roll credits. <laughs> you forgot the subtle follow your dream quote at the end that um, I think uh, Cisco put in his review that I totally agree with, which wasn't even necessary because it's almost like it pisses you off even more that you have this <laughs> five second ending and then you have a Ronaldo just Ronaldo's voice <laughs> follow your dreams. Ah, oh, no shit. <laughs> like, come <Right>. on. <laughs> but the ending literally is I, this is the biggest misstep of the movie where the only explanation I could have come with, like I said, is that they ran out of money. There's no other explanation to any film no other explanation saying that this is good. That's like staying saying, Oh, my contract's up. I'm out. So the ending I, just you ruins can't, it. You can't do the studio ending with Frankenstein. Like the creatures have to die. They don't belong in this world. That's just the whole point of it. You have to be a very creative writer and director and performer to convince an audience, let alone film critics, that you can successfully change the whole meaning and the whole metaphor of what these characters represent from classic literature to all of the incarnations in film. I've never seen it done successfully. It just doesn't work that way. And so this is a cheat code. They try to cheat code the studio ending into what's supposed to be the most intentionally tragic ending to characters in horror literature and cinema. And they just robbed us of it. Yeah, and they had the perfect buildup of tragedy. They did. They had Ronaldo's death. They had uh, the misery of the bride. And there it would have been, I hate to say it, but kill kill Victor because right now he has faced a roadblock of just pure pain and tragedy. There is no reason why he should live, as horrible as that sounds, but that's the way the movie should have played. This is what it was set up for. So if they wanted this to be a romance, one the chem the it had to be set up halfway through the movie and we didn't get any right. setup until like the last maybe 25 minutes or so where they finally see each other and there's really no chemistry there other than just a hey how you doing here's a gift so we really did need more time or we needed more time at the bare minimum with Beals her thought process after uh being with Victor so mm -hmm. There's no exploration on this. And that's where I think the frustrating piece was. It's a double painful hit on the ending where it almost feels like we're cheated. So let's talk about 
our reaction to their viewpoints on this film. I've got to say, and I said it last time, I think on the last episode or maybe before it, where this is one of the times where Siskel really is on point with his criticism because it's well thought out. It really is reflectionary of the movie. It's not just his, you know, spicy hot words and, and hit pieces towards a film just to get some traction in his in his writing or in his presentation of these reviews. Instead, he is really relaying the same feelings that you and I have to this movie, and he's doing it very eloquently. He's not getting overexcited. And granted, it's the very first film they review in this episode of Worst Movies. They get a lot more boisterous towards the end. I watched the whole episode. But yeah, I would say that this is one of the most on point he's been so far in our conversations of of their reviews. Yeah, I agree. I, I think based on his written review and his verbal review, I think I think they both do a good job on setting out the layer of almost a first reaction of how they felt about the movie, the most obvious, but at the same time, the flaws in the movie are so obvious, even for the average moviegoer, that anybody can write these flaws out. So these reviews, especially with Siskel's, actually does speak to the audience on what to expect if you go to this movie. And I can't picture a majority saying he was wrong because he doesn't, no, <laughs> because and that's kind of what shocks me during the worst picture uh, piece of it is they don't call it a horrible movie. There's a lot of balancing issues. There's a lot of misdirection on it. They call all these out, but in no way are they as passionate as they are with other movies that are just worse than what we saw on uh, The Bride. Yeah, I mean, well, they tore apart uh, Seems Like Old Times a lot more than they did on this one. Rightfully so. And... Yeah, <laughs> thanks. But um, yeah, the, the fact that this is on the worst movies list is insulting to me, but I'm not going to hold it against my criticism of their review because both of their reviews were very tasteful, tactful, and and well thought. And in defense, because I brought up like Porky's Revenge and all that, but the one thing that I kind of can understand is coming out of the summer, we're going into the back half of the movie where we do have a lot of well-done films, a lot of Oscar uh, bait going through it. So if you're coming out of the the summer with an already disappointing review or horrible review, it's a good chance if you got a one star, you're probably going to appear on that list because your competition to take you out is probably going to be very slim. So since this is my pick uh, for the week, I'm going to go ahead and say that I give Mr. Gene Siskel's review of this film an A minus. I like it. I like the fact that he was restrained. I like the fact that he uh, didn't go overboard with the clever words and the sarcasm. He was genuinely frustrated by this film. And I think that is why he's so eloquent in these words is because he had high expectations for it. It was a disappointment to him. And all of his responses, in my opinion, were valid. Yeah, I think I would agree with that because when we look at Ebert, he didn't have a written review on this. So the only thing we have to go off of is his words on the show. And even though he speaks with simplicity of what was wrong with the film, I do disagree with the caring piece because there are elements here that a lot of people, I shouldn't say a lot, but people can relate to. So I wouldn't say I would disagree with the, the caring piece of it. So to me, I think the movie 
review that he gave was simplistic. It was on point. But I do have some disagreements because there's more examples in this movie to show against that review than what he actually verbalized. So I'm going to go with a solid three for Roger Ebert. I like it. So I just want your honest opinion. Would you recommend this film to people who haven't seen it? Would you say, hey, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this movie. It's worth your two hours of time. So I'll recommend any movie for everybody to try. But this one, well, I shouldn't say that. But <laughs> yeah, I know that's a lie. <laughs> no, but I would say give it a shot because you know what? It's not an awful movie. It's not a horrible movie. I wasn't clenching my fist, wanting to turn it off. So I actually was enjoying it for the worst thing that will happen is that you may be bored during probably about 30 to 35 minutes or whatever Beale's performance is in this. But there's mm -hmm. more positives and negatives when it comes to the entertainment value. So I think at the bare minimum, you'll at least be entertained. So I would recommend. Yeah, me too. I think that it is definitely one of those 80s films that really speaks to what people were trying to do in the 80s. You know, where we are still trying to present grandiose cinema and spectacle on the screen, but also trying to appeal to the audiences that are a little bit younger, that are more into the MTV phase, that are more into whatever is hit and contemporary. And it, I like what it was trying to do by getting people interested in the Frankenstein story again, because we just seen so much caricature of that character and of that story for decades through the Hammer films and through all the Hanna-Barbera cartoons and stuff like that, it became kind of a joke. So I like the fact that they were trying to give some respect to a very distinguished story and a very distinguished metaphor for humanity. And it just deserved a better package. And I know I've said that a few times, but that's how I feel. I, I gave this a higher review on my Letterboxd score than a lot of people did because I think that it is worth the watch. And if I gave it what I thought a base level review would be, I don't think enough people would be interested to see the film. So I gave it a little bit higher because I want people to see it. I want to, I want to convey that there's a lot to appreciate here. Oh, a hundred percent. And with any adaption, I mean, any adaption that can get somebody to look at the original source material, especially when it comes to cinema, to go back to the original 1930s version, I'm all for because when it looks at the when we look at the Victor Frankenstein, this is the most like empathy driven mo like monster that we have, and I want to see this movie. And I'm crossing my fingers, just like you with Del Toro, to really bring a respect to the material, but at the same time have enough there to really encourage teenagers to adults to really go back and look at the source material and compare and contrast and really have that encouragement to really look at where our culture has gone from the roots of our uh, books and plays and where we become now. I agree a hundred percent. Well, man, let's talk about next week because we just did Frankenstein's and next week we're going to be jumping into Justin's pick where we'll be talking about vampires Justin's bringing to the show 1995's From Dusk Till Dawn, written by Tarantino, directed by Rodriguez, starring George Clooney, Tarantino himself, Harvey Keitel, Juliet Lewis. The list goes on and on. 
I'm really excited for that one. And I think it'd be a nice palate cleanser for this particular episode. So if uh, you're looking forward to that one, get on to your streaming services, find that digital copy, find that physical copy, watch the film so you can join us next week. And man, this was just a great conversation. I'm always so happy to talk about these more obscure films with you because I feel like these are the kind of films that slip through the cracks and we just want to get more people experiencing them, right? Oh, 100%. So, and hopefully people take a view for themselves, like we've said numerous times, and generate your own opinions on them because we're just two opinions. 100%. And if you want to know our final uh, reviews on these, you can check out our letterbox pages where we've got our stars and we've got our brief reviews. And I actually think that we should start asking audience members to share their letterbox scores of these films with us. So we can kind of see where their mindset is, where their opinions are and how they either, I don't know, reflect or contradict the legends Siskel and Eber here. <laughs> that is a brilliant idea. I would love to see that. Well, Justin, Everyone knows where to find you on the moviewire.com, all of your socials on Instagram and uh, X, Twitter, Elon site, whatever you want to call it. I'm over at thecultworthy.com where you can find all my stuff. Great conversation. I'm Antonio Palacios of the Cult Worthy Podcast. And I'm Justin Henson of the Movie Wire Podcast. We'll see you next week when we bring you back to the balcony.